We welcome attorney Ben Crump and Professor Arthur Gibson. Why extremism? It seems to be a hot topic for the mainstream media. And today is definitely our show. We're going to talk about white extremism and violence by angry white men. Are they angry because they're white? Well, they feel so. They feel as though they're being disenfranchised. Society is leaving them behind. They're the most easily discriminated and maligned group in America. Now, they are the new minority. Do you agree? This is their story in their own voices. We're going to delve into a conversation about white supremacy, young whites who commit terrorist acts. And I'm reading the national bestseller, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of the 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. I often hear you um, when you're talking about cases and families that you represent. Um, oftentimes, you inject white supremacy, white terrorism. Talk about that with our audience. You know, Armstrong, it's uh, something that we have to let society know is real. A lot of people think that, oh, it's uh, a figment of people's imagination. No, the FBI has said that the number one concern with domestic terrorism is white supremacy. We saw it play out in these mass shootings all over America. Uh, I represent the black families in the Buffalo, New York area where this young supremacist went in and killed 10 of the most innocent people you could find in that Buffalo supermarket. Uh, I mean, grandmothers and school teachers, it was just tragic. And he said in his manifesto that he was going to try to kill as many black people as he could. That's his words. And then obviously, in your home state of South Carolina, we saw Dylan Roof, the young white supremacist. And my cousin, Clemente Pinckney, died. Yeah, your, your family yeah. member. Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't find more innocent people who were killed just on this notion of white supremacy. Uh, and, and so it's these things that must be addressed, must be discussed. I want to go back to Buffalo because it was really a, an epiphany for me. If you watch the video of the shooter, when he came to someone who happened to be white, he apologized for even thinking about killing him. He said, oh, uh, you're good. He was just looking for black people. So if I were in the store, he knows nothing about my values, know nothing about my background and what I believe, he would have just seen the pigmentation of my skin and would have just killed me. No different than Dylan Roof in Charleston, South Carolina at Mother Emanuel Church. They just want to kill, but just strictly based on race. Yeah, in this completely unadulterated ignorance, uh, we know that the color of our skin is a figmentation of what our limitations are. It, it says nothing about what we can achieve in life or what we are capable of, but there are these people who will say, because my skin is white, I'm superior to you and you are inferior to me. Uh, we just had a landmark lawsuit, Armstrong, where I represented a black woman who sued 
Harvard University over slave photographs, and those slave photographs were depicted her great-great-great-grandfather, Papa Renty, and his daughter, Delia, who was stripped down naked to prove the Harvard professor at the time in 1850 uh, racist scientific theory of black inferiority. While Abraham Lincoln was talking about Emancipation Proclamation, Professor Lewis Agassiz was saying, no, 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 I can prove blacks are inferior to whites and I can prove it scientifically. And then he said, I want ocular proof for my racist science. And so he went down to Charleston, South Carolina, and he found Papa Rente, who they call a pure African because his blood had not been commingled with white citizens' blood, and he took these pictures. And so it shows you that this white supremacy has origins far beyond what we can even imagine, and they tried to legitimate it academically. And so we had won the case in the Massachusetts Supreme Court saying that this black woman would be able to recover against Harvard University for the intentional infliction of emotional distress and the reckless intention of emotional distress for her great-great-great-grandfather and for her in this 10-year battle where she's trying to say, this is my grandfather. He's not irrelevant. He's not insignificant. He is not inferior, Harvard. But when you try to deny us this linkage, then you're doing just what your predecessors did 172 years ago of saying it's irrelevant, it's not that important to acknowledge the humanity in this black man that has been on this uh, picture forever. These daguerreotypes that Harvard has in their possession are some of the earliest known photographs in existence in the world today, and they uh, suggests that they're worth about a hundred million dollars. And so this was a huge victory for this black family, but it goes right back to the heart of the matter of this white supremacy and the fact that they have continued to try to perpetuate this lie for hundreds of years. The majority of people who happen to be white has nothing in common with these terrorists. Uh, and they just do it in the name of what they consider to be whiteness, whatever that means. But how do you combat this? How do we make progress? How do you legislate a change someone's heart? Or something that's indoctrinated. And then, I mean, is it from their parents? Is it from their schooling? Do they find a group of people that they just congregate with and they come out of this, these groups with these ideas? Well, I, I think a lot of it, when you talk about legislation, we have to pass these hate crime laws. And if you kill somebody or uh, assault and batter somebody because of the color of their skin, you should be held accountable to a greater extent than even what the laws are on the paper because we have to say in American society that we will not condone nor tolerate this racist uh, hate crime that caused people to have to live and constant fear. But, but if you're asking for more, the, the least that can happen, they serve life in prison. If you said something more than what the law requires, you have to be talking no, about no, execution. No, I'm, I'm saying on hate crimes, then execution? it can go to uh, life in prison. A lot of these crimes don't give you life in prison. But uh, you never would advocate execute. You would not well, execute the person I, from I, Buffalo and Uvalde? I would not say I would never advocate for the death penalty. I said 
I am against it the way it is currently being implied now because I think it's disproportionately applied against people of color. And so unless, we, until we can fix that, that's why I don't support the, the death penalty. We're talking about supremacy. We're talking about hate crimes. I don't want to mix the two to confuse people. We're talking about when these kind of acts are committed, what should happen. Let me ask you, I mean, is this an indictment when they're 17 and 18 year olds of their parents and their community? I do think in certain instances, the parents have played roles in this indoctrination and radicalization of these young people going to commit these awful acts of violence. When you think about the folks pushing this race replacement theory, and certainly that was uh, articulated by this young white supremacist in Buffalo, he, his opinion was that we have to do something because these minorities, these black people, these Jewish people, these Hispanic people are replacing the white people in America and we have to do something radical to stop that. Well, that's just absolute ignorance when you think about it. But yet you have people who know better, people who have huge platforms pushing this radicalization of these young, insecure, White man. Well, you can't say that these platforms are advocating for these mentally uh, self-hating, confused young men that go out and commit massacres. You have to be responsible in using your platform so it doesn't radicalize young people to go out and commit senseless acts of violence. Now, am we saying that they should be held criminally liable for having their opinions. The First Amendment protects those thoughts. But you want to be responsible in how you articulate whatever philosophy you have not to encourage people to commit violence. Well, it seems as though when we talk about this terrorism, this supremacy, it's not the older generation, it's the younger generation. Well, I think it's the older generation that are articulating the opinions and it's the younger generation acting on those opinions. And I think that's always been the case in the world. Are we saying that this country has not made much progress since the days of the Ku Klux Klan? And they're just dressed differently without the hoods? You just can't recognize them like you could easily do back during the late 50s and the 60s? Well, that's a compound question. I, I believe we've made much progress, but we still have much further to go. And I do believe it's been documented that there are many white supremacists uh, working within our police uh, departments and so forth. So we have to try to root them out because that's not good for anybody. It's not good for uh, the minority community, and it's not good for the police community to have these white supremacists on your police forces. You know, this is a small fraction of our population, but the consequences are absolutely deadly. Um, and it doesn't seem, if someone is bent on killing someone because they're white, because they're black, because they're Jewish, eventually, Asian, Asian they're going to find a way to do it. What role does the media play? Well, I think the media, uh, as always, plays an uh, incredibly powerful role. I think the more the media condemns white supremacy, 
or any kind of racial supremacy on any level. It is important to do because you're sending those subliminal messages to society that this is not tolerated, this is not allowed. We cannot condone this in any form or fashion. Um, have you ever met a white supremacist or someone who's a white terrorist? Did you ever have to confront them? Well, I, I've certainly been on panels where I have talked with people who expressed white supremacy philosophies. Um, to say they were a white supremacist, I don't know if I could say that, but they certainly expressed things that seem to be consistent with these notions of race replacement theory and all the social ills in America has to deal with uh, black people and, uh, you know, these things that are ludicrous. So were you able to change minds through intellect, through your faith, um, just by just engaging them? Dialogue is always something that we have to encourage. Uh, even if I don't agree with you, we should at least hear one another. And, uh, you know, you and I do a lot of that, Armstrong, where we try to hear one another even when we disagree. And so I want to believe that after we had those discussions that we were greater enlightened. Whether we changed their opinion or not, I don't know. Uh, you know, oftentimes I, I have people come up to me, and, and I've shared this with you, Armstrong said, I saw you and Armstrong talking, and uh, you know, I respect some of the points you made. Uh, they don't say they agree with everything I said, but they respect the points that you and I talked about, even if you and I were in disagreement. And I think that gives us reason for hope, because that meant they were listening. Let me introduce Art Gibson, who's Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice, University of Dayton. And what are people talking about when they say extremism? It's important to look at the research. And the research shows us that what we're talking about is extremism. So values, beliefs, and actions that significantly differentiate themselves from the mainstream culture. So in other words, we're talking about values and beliefs and actions that are significantly different than the mainstream. Ultimately, all extremists have some perception of what we might consider to be a grievance, a major concern, a problem that they believe that, that their extreme actions measured in relationship to mainstream culture are the only ways to accomplish those goals. What is white extremism? So, so typically what we refer to within that kind of context is white supremacy, white separatism, white militia movements. The, the idea that a group of people want to create what is often referred to as a white ethnostate, that any other society is not healthy. So their typical motivations are tied to racism 
or uh, an assumption of racial superiority. So we see a lot of conversation today in the popular press about white nationalism. White nationalism is not the same thing as, say, patriotism, right? Love, respect, honor for one's country, right? Patriotism is not the same thing as white nationalism. White nationalism, as I'm describing it, that's tied to the research, does have these ideas about superiority, inferiority, and create belief systems such as Christian identity, which uses misinterpretations of religion to support the idea that only white people have souls, that only white people are children of God, or only white people should have social, political, and other kinds of rights, that everyone else is not even a human being. So white supremacists often have a broader approach or a broader sensibility that, that might even be tied to not only racism and hate crime, but even acts of genocide. But white nationalists believe that they need to remake the government, the society, the culture, in order to advocate for and create systems that only act on the interests of whites as they understand it. And I don't mean to turn this into some simple or foolish argument that the internet is all bad or that social media is all bad, but the tools that we now have available to share ideas, regardless of the quality of the ideas, regardless of how correct or truthful the ideas are, has really shifted. When I look at how white nationalism or white supremacy focuses of my research over the past several decades, the idea that used to be where people would communicate ideas one-on-one -on -one through conversation, think about how slow that is, but yet still powerful and still influential. Compare that to the situation we find ourselves in today. But their ability to share those ideas has never been as powerful as it is today. I can speak to some of the research and some of my own research it's, it's important to recognize that, that we're all looking for systems of meaning. We're all looking for purpose. We're all looking for community. Extremism and extremists in particular, social movements, organizations, have become quite adept, quite skilled at reaching individuals and giving people something that they can land on, something that they can believe in, something that satisfies questions of meaning, questions of purpose. I have personally interviewed white supremacists who have made it their mission in life to reach out to young white men and to try to provide them with systems of meaning. Aren't these shooters just lone wolves, not some greater movement that we have to do all this investigation to find out what is going on? Could we just call it Rebellion? A term like lone wolf is problematic. And what I mean by that is it's not very good, it's not accurate, right? So when I say it's not good, it's not good because it's a blanket statement and we're making assumptions that extremist violence or extremist groups just came out of nowhere. That, that in many ways we have to recognize that the, the most dangerous e extremist actors are individuals who have been radicalized 
by groups, social movements, counter movements, ideologies that are in the culture, right? right? So it's important that, that when we hear someone say lone wolf, we stop and ask, well, all right, where did that ideology come from? I often like to answer this question in terms of when we talk about white supremacy and white domestic extremism, we often think in terms of a historical past. We think in terms of the Klan, right? The Ku Klux Klan. We think in terms of the American Nazi party. We think in terms of these groups that were active in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s. It's a very different landscape today. And so even a small group can have a profound reach. If not lone wolves, who are these so-called pack of animals known as groups? I often like to answer this question in terms of when we talk about white supremacy and white domestic extremism, we often think in terms of a historical past. We think in terms of the Klan, right? The Ku Klux Klan. We think in terms of the American Nazi party. We think in terms of these groups that were active in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s. It's a very different landscape today. And so even a small group can have a profound reach what do I mean by that? They can reach a lot of people with a simple message. And for someone who is searching for something to believe in, this can be really, really powerful. I think there are concerns with groups like the Proud Boys that, that, that are willing to engage in acts of violence. And so when I'm typically asked that question, I think in terms of which groups are teaching their members concepts like violence is an acceptable answer to the problems that they believe they're facing, that teach ideas like replacement theory, that there is some international or national conspiracy that is organized and actively trying to replace one group or ethnicity with another and furthermore, use racist stereotypes, racist tropes, um, attacks on one group or another in order to justify their actions. So, so when you take those three, kind of like a tripod of concerns about extremist action, I think you quickly find that there are many different groups that unfortunately fit the bill. Where do men who hate women fit, hate their mothers, hate their wives, hate their fathers? Where do they fit in this dialogue? There's some overlap with white racial extremism, but it's not a perfect overlap. And the history and the origins of the incel movement are qualitatively different. Right? They're pretty fundamentally different than, than white racial extremism. But there are fairly traditional gender stereotypes that are used by those involved in the white racial extremist movement. And there certainly are assumptions about the role of men and women in the white racial extremist movement, but there have been women who've been leaders 
in um, white extremist organizations, but there is an effort both historically and recently to target um, people based upon their sexuality, their identity, their personhood as a means by which to kind of vitalize the effort to gather people into the various organizations and the broader movements among these kinds of white racial extremists. Um, historically, uh, gay people, um, LGBTQ, um, uh, various uh, pe people with different identities um, have been attacked by white racial extremists as, as a way to create a very clear separation of the worldview of, of the extremists from um, what they see as a sick or ill mainstream society. When it comes to this extremism, is there anything that we can do about it? First of all, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for taking the time to stop, to pause and think about these issues a little more carefully and methodically. And, and that's really important, especially in the media environment that, that we find ourselves in. I also think it's important to recognize that, that we are trying to tie that effort to create understanding to the research. We're not talking about opinion. We're not talking about denigrating someone because of their political point of view or their spiritual or personal or whatever type of perspective someone might have, but rather recognizing the harm that is created in our communities by extremists who believe that it is acceptable to harm someone who doesn't think or feel or love the way that they do. And so I think that's important that, that, that we recognize what we're doing, not just as um, a process to create understanding, but a process to strengthen our communities, to stop and think deeply about the kind of communities we want to live in, the kind of communities we want our children to inherit after we're gone. And so I think that, that the research demonstrates the more we share what we understand about extremism and extremist actors and extremist violence, the more we equip law enforcement in our communities and our other stakeholders, right, religious leaders, to be able to respond to these problems more effectively. Professor Gibson, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for so much for sharing light and depth into this conversation. We've had many shows surrounding video games um, and the danger, the inherent dangers. But are video games to blame for this violence? We talked to experts, and this is what they had to say. Sort of the issue with you know video games or video game violence is really just the latest spin. Um, you know, you really can go back nearly 2,400 years and see people, you know, complaining about Greek plays, you know, for instance, causing delinquency in minors. And, uh, you know, more recently, people expressed concerns over the radio back in the 1940s and rock music in the 1950s and, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and rock music again in the 1980s. And it kind of just goes round and round. I think, you know, whenever there's a... Uh 
new technology, and although, as you say, this is not all that new, um, the older generation is very suspicious of it. Um, whenever there's a new form of media, a new something that youth gravitate to, um, the older generation tends to think, oh, this is in some sense the ruin ruination of, <laughs> of the species. I think it, uh, it, it's an easy target for one thing because video games, the violent ones, have people shooting at imaginary targets uh, and using, you know, guns. Uh, so, uh, it, and you know, there's talk about uh, the military using video games for target practice and training. And, and so it, uh, it's not a, a stretch to believe that um, someone who is inclined to wanna use a weapon, a gun for in real life. And it's very generational. So it tends to be that the sort of the audience for this, you know, tends to be you know, older adults who don't really use whatever the new media is or the new technology. And it's very easy then for them to dislike this new media, this new technology. And so there's kind of like this temptation to blame it on any kind of perceived or real societal, you know, problems. You know, this happened when, when uh, I mean, going way back when the printing press was developed and suddenly novels were, were available to people and youth were reading novels. There was fear that this was going to rot the minds and and destroy the morals of young people. When television became uh, available to the masses, uh, people thought this was going to be the ruination of the, of the kids and young people who are spending so much time watching television. When I was a kid, it was... Uh, superhero uh, comics that were people thought were the cause of violence and so on and so forth. And, you know, of course, we know that uh, some of the people involved in mass shootings, you know, spent time at home playing these games. So that's not really proof because there are plenty of people who spend the same amount of time and never do anything. And every once in a while, uh, not no surprise, uh, one finds a case of some young man generally uh, who has uh, committed some terrible violent crime and lo and behold he had been somebody who watched video games but of course you have to take into account that there's relatively few young men who don't watch video games so the only meaningful way to look at that is to look at statistically do people who watch video games are they more likely or are less likely or people who play video games rather or play even play violent video games are they more or less likely to engage in real world violence almost all young men play violent video games at least occasionally so it's, it's even hard to really find correlation you know between you know game playing and um you know and any kind of major aggression or violent behavior so there used to be kind of that narrative well well maybe there's a correlation between video game violent violent you know exposure and aggressive behavior and maybe that's a selection effect and more aggressive people are playing violent video games and therefore you know are committing more violent acts that doesn't tell us that someone will go out on the street and shoot people it does tell us that it makes guns uh, more attractive and interesting as something to to try to use what's happened in a lot of different re research fields in psychology is people just churned out bad study after bad study and so you do kind of accumulate these big pools of bad research you know that um really aren't that good 
Uh, and a lot of what happened is that, you know, there really were, and again, I'm not just talking specifically about video game research, but really psychology in general is that, um, you know, people were allowed to basically pick and choose outcomes in their data analysis that fit their hypotheses and ignore outcomes that didn't. And that created this kind of false picture of the surety that we have with a lot of our theories, a lot of our, our beliefs. And again, you can just, like I said, just Google replication crisis in psychology and you'll see what I'm talking about. But 400 bad studies are no better than, uh, than one bad study or no studies. So the way the studies are done, uh, to the degree that I can tell, are, are the following. So you bring, first of all, these are not long-term. They're not looking in these studies at long-term players. They're looking at, at the short-term effect of playing a violent video game in the lab. So you bring people into the laboratory. You know, some of them play a violent video game. That's the experimental group. And then there's a control group that does something else. They, do, they play some game that's not violent or they do something different. And then you test them on what they're calling a measure of violence. Now, of course, you're not going to have real violence in the laboratory, right? I mean, you're not gonna, you're not gonna give the person an option to kill somebody or to really truly hurt somebody. And so I think like video games was was part of that, you know, um, along with a lot of other fields. And and so you do see this like arc of early on. Um, well, actually, what kind of happened is, you know, in the, in the 90s and, you know, there, there were a few studies of violent video games that really, all in all, were not terribly impressive for the most part. There's only maybe a dozen or two dozen of them. And then all of a sudden, after Columbine in 2000, there was this massive explosion of these studies of violence in video games because that's, again, there's a lot of societal interest on, on that issue. That's what people did kind of churn out, you know, dozens of these, again, I would think of them as being low quality studies, you know, for the most part, there wasn't a lot of rigor and control in these studies. And most of them were, again, these like milder forms of aggression. Many of the researchers are prone to the same biases that the general public has that, uh, yes, indeed, um, uh, these, these, uh, you know, these games cause violence, uh, and I want to prove it, <laughs> you know, and they may not, they may not think there's anything wrong with that. I, I'm going to design a study that'll help show this scientifically. And so they design a study that helps show it scientifically. I think that that, I think a lot of social scientists design their studies that way. They, they know what they want to show and they design the study and they don't think of this as cheating. They think I'm designing a good study, uh, but it's a study that I'm pretty sure is going to show what I want to show. I think violent video games have nothing to do with the anger and arousal. But when a person is searching their brain for scripts, social scripts for how to behave, if a person's been exposed to a lot of violent behavior, seeing people in the neighborhood behave violently, seeing people in their family behave violently, seeing people in the media and movies behave violently, or seeing uh, in video games violent behavior or behaving violently in video games, that uh, reinforces a script in their brain to deal with anger by behaving violently. Boys have always tended to enjoy games that involve a certain amount of pretend violence. Um, there's no evidence at all that any of that promoted actual real world violence. But I think one could make the case that uh, it at least gives people 
exposure to the use of a weapon that they might not have otherwise and give them practice in using one. You would have to show some data indicating that the school shooters and the mass shooters are playing video games at a rate higher than uh, other uh, young men, it's mostly young men, um, uh, are playing such games. The perpetrators of mass homicide actually consume on average fewer video games, fewer violent video games than do same age males, you know, uh, com you know, comparison groups of males. In 2019, youth violence was at a record low. It had never been so low in the past 48 years. And the things that really, you know, predict, you know, certainly violent crime tend to be, you know, bad families, you know, fatherlessness, things like that, neglect, um, genetics, um, you know, trade, trade aggression, having a more aggressive personality. Kids who are exposed to more violence, media violence, as well as family violence and community violence are significantly more likely to behave when they're angry violently. It's simplistic to blame the media for this alone. I think we have to take it in the context of the U.S. We really have a problem of the intersection of a small group of highly at-risk individuals being able to easily access firearms. Violent video games are all over the world, but the other many other, most of the other countries don't have the mass shooting problem we have, and that's because we can get these weapons. This kid in Illinois who shot up people, um, and the father really completely abrogated his responsibility. He did nothing. Now we go to um, our correspondent, Charles House. Well, I would say probably about <laughs> six years ago, I wouldn't have thought anything about it, um, other than that there were some crazies out there who um, definitely had far right beliefs and were racist, but I didn't realize how pervasive that was until um, Trump took power and uh, they came out of their little dark holes and found some power in that, which is kind of scary and sad. White terrorism, yeah. Uh, I think it is a danger in our society. I think we should be concerned uh, about radical ideas uh, being, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, the radical ideas are being pushed uh, through through violent means, and that's not okay. That's not okay. Everyone's got their, everyone's got entitled to their own opinion, right? But when you start uh, hurting other people, I'm, that's where the line draws for me. For sure, the, the rise of um, extremely right-wing movements in this country, where people support, where people are um, starting to become more openly uh, white, uh, white supremacist, that does that does concern me for sure, uh, but uh, as far as I know, those for for the time being, those views are extremely radical. It's currently being dealt with um, pretty effectively by um, by the the House of Representatives right now with the uh, with the hearings, with the January six hearings, um, and hopefully uh, those continue being fringe views and don't end up becoming uh, bigger than they actually are. But they do concern me for sure. White terrorism, uh, usually people that have gone a little too far with their thoughts, I mean, 
you know, segregationists are probably not a good idea in today's world, especially with the way the trend that the United States is going in. Um, I'm not sure how they're getting followers, usually people that are lost and looking for some kind of connection belong, to belong part of a, of a group. Well, all, all terrorism con, uh, concerns me, you know, white, uh, minority terrorism, you know, whoever, whoever perpetrates it, you know, violence against anybody. So you're, you're specifically talking about white, um, and I would be more concerned about all, all terrorism. So yeah, I, th I think it's, it's an issue. It, it concerns me because I'm a Christian. You know, I truly believe that um, um, we, we should uh, do our best to appreciate each other. So I, I try to live my life by the two golden rules, love God, love people. So, you know, so that encompasses every, anything I can respond to. It's a bit of the same. Uh, we also have it in Belgium. I think we have it everywhere in the world, um, not just in America. Sometimes it's highlighted here uh, because here there are a lot of protests with us. It's just you accept it and it's like that. But we don't really hear a lot of it. Um, but I think it's really important that it's highlighted and that everybody hears that it's still there and that we should not just accept it. I think there's a lot of like turmoil right now and a lot of people feeling like people that shouldn't be feeling really excited and empowered or feeling really excited and empowered and I think a lot of that is like powerful white people in positions of power um, or wealth uh, and I think that leads to I don't know I think there's just a lot of disconnect with people and they're like concerned with their position in society um, and I think that leads them to sort of dangerous acts like terrorism. Um, and I think that's obviously very concerning. Of course it, it does. Where it's rooted in is, is a problem. Uh, white nationalists, KKK, uh, groups like that. But now we've seen a spread in general of terrorism on both ends of the spectrum. And that's concerning to me because we give too much time and effort and focus to those 1% of people that hate the other side, hate people of color, or, you know, or hate their, their fellow neighbor. And really, if we, we the, the, the media takes a lot of focus on the radical stories that come up. Whether you get uh, the person that ran through a crowd in Christmas Day, or the person in Texas, or the person in New York, you know, people that, that are racially motivated, make up the news, the 1% make up 99% of the news, and that's the problem. We have way bigger stories, we have way more in common than we have that divides us, and honestly, quite frankly, if we would spend more time on that, we would see less political divide, less racial divide, and we would see more, you know, unity. Yes, of course I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, um, I think the, the world is moving to a direction that is probably beyond, you know, one race's um, sort of control in the sense that, you know, the U.S. is probably going to be um, more diverse than ever and um, everybody should be on board of that. Uh, it's, you cannot turn your clock back. Listen, Margaret Atwood wrote about this, Octavia Butler, in the 1980s about Christian extremism, which 
obviously has roots with white supremacy in this country. I mean, it's always been a problem since they lost this fight in segregation, right? They can't control women's bodies. They're becoming increasingly able to um, oppress people of color. I mean, it's just gonna get worse the more rights we get and the more successful that people and advocates like me know that we're successful is when they start lashing out more violently because they're jealous of the success, the success we have and the fact they can't control us because they can't. It is a very concerning topic. I mean, it's pretty shocking how we are in this day and age and still have to do deal with such like right-wing like views, but I guess it shouldn't be too shocking since we are in America, but I would have thought we would have progressed a bit to be like to a point where this is not a discussion as much anymore. I think gun control definitely needs to be improved in this country. Well, like in Australia, we had a, a mass shooting in Port Arthur in Tasmania, and after that we had new gun laws introduced to stop semi-automatic and automatic guns and there hasn't been a mass shooting since. So. I do think it has a lot to do with Trump. I think it started probably when the, um, I mean he was elected I believe because of their feeling emboldened to do so, um, but I think it was it was coming about before that. Um, I think people are scared of the other, um, and the other being people from outside of the United States coming in. I think they're a lot of white men scared of losing their sense of power, whatever that is. It's definitely getting worse uh, with the level of partisanship. Uh, that there is in this country right now. Uh, people are starting to become more and more at each other's throats. P uh, discussions between people are becoming a lot, lot, a lot harder to have. So for sure, uh, white supremacist views are becoming a lot more pointed and a lot, and a lot more prominent. Uh, we, we, we have a few uh, Congress people right now who are openly espousing those views, and that is very, very disheartening. Uh, so, yeah, it is, it is extremely concerning how it is getting worse. It, hopefully, it doesn't get worse than that, but uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm from Ohio. I have a lot of thoughts on white terrorism. Um, it's frustrating to me that you were just saying at Dobbs, we're both out here for Dobbs' opinion when it was leaked, mm -hmm. fighting for our right to reproductive health care and abortion access. They had snipers on this roof, but we didn't see that during the insurrection. The fact that white privilege allows people who commit acts of violence against, let's say, abortion clinics even, right? They've been targeting us for years. Brett Kavanaugh gets one death threat and everyone's up in arms. Where were they when white terrorists were bombing and killing our doctors? Where were they when they were targeting um, POC communities and protests for Black Lives Matter? I mean, it's all about white privilege and people here are so afraid about the other, the ethnic other, the um, other who comes from a different country. Um, Islamophobia is rampant where I'm from in Ohio, that they fail to see that there's Christian and white supremacists here that are trying to um, impose their own version of religious extremism with a white nationalist twist on the rest of us. And it's terrifying to be, um, I mean, I'm a white woman, but I, I'm still terrified because of the implications it has for my friends and, and myself as an abortion rights advocate. As things have become more equal and, and uh, people who are LGBTQ, LGBTQ, who are women, 
who are powerful, who are uh, black, brown, people of, who are immigrants have come in and found a home here and found equality here. I think that's terrifying to white people who are of a certain mindset. We've lost track of that sense. Uh, a lot of it has to do with a lot of rhetoric on both sides. And quite frankly, uh, the political leaders on both sides have failed to realize what their purpose is, you know? Uh, and, you know, they'll devote back to the stories, the, the radical stories. They'll focus on the fringes, the KKK, the alt-right movement, those types of things. Uh, but you got racially motivated people on both sides. So what really honestly matters is if we would just focus on the issues, the people that elected us, and realize those people are more in the middle than what we are hearing in the news media today, or on both sides. I would think and I hope that, that the authorities um, would have a pretty good idea now that they track people online and the internet services that they've got a pretty good idea of who these groups are, what they're up to for the most part. So, you know, you're always going to have a few pockets or cells that may be able to um, pull some kind of shenanigans off. But I think for the most part, they're not, they're not that big of a threat. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, we tried to talk about this extremism in detail, with substance, and not with soundbite. So you can really delve into the psychology and the makeup and what drives all people, no matter their color or ethnic background, to kill innocent people, massacre them, just massacre them for no reason at all. Thank you for joining us on another episode 